Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. We had Brittany Higgins' employer saying in front of a whole group of employees that she was a lying cow for the employer not to understand that you don't say that about anyone in front of employees anyway, but to say that about the person who's made the allegations about your office and how your office handled something is extraordinary. I think it's extraordinary that she still got her job. International Women's Day gives a greater focus on the rights of women and their protections in the workplace and celebrating the legacy of a trailblazer in the creative and performing arts sectors. Filmmakers are now told if you're going to write about an Aboriginal character, you need to have an Aboriginal consultant. You just can't write about an experience that you've never lived. And so we're seeing an adjustment with the lens. And so I think that's really exciting. And I think Radiant's in a way, was a bit of a catalyst to initiate those conversations. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Claims of sexual assault in Parliament House and a bombshell interview with Oprah. Joining me to discuss the big issues of the past week are industry professor at the Jumbana Institute, Lyndon Coombs, and ABC's Indigenous Affairs reporter, Isabella Higgins. This year, the marking of International Women's Day brought a stark reminder of how far we have to go for women to be equal in the workplace and in society more generally. Isabella, what were your reflections on this International Women's Day? My reflections were that I definitely feel like I saw a lot more women of colour than usual and I saw a lot more conversations about whether women of colour are being included appropriately or enough. It sort of heartened me that we are having that conversation on International Women's Day. And I think just on social media, all of my friends, the amount of people who wanted to weigh in, talk about the women that they love, it feels like it's becoming a more important day and cutting through beyond, you know, the corporate breakfasts and things like that to be something that the average person cares about. What were your reflections on what was happening in Parliament during the week? On a personal level, it was just incredibly difficult and depressing, I think, to know that these are the conditions that women work in or that women still experience this. I think hearing about Brittany Higgins's ordeal, the things that came out that were said about her on a personal level as a woman, that is so difficult to hear. And I think it just foreshadows how much work is needed to change the culture of that place. And sometimes I think the culture of journalism isn't so different to the culture of political staffers in these kind of fast-paced industries that are incredibly competitive where there's always more people ready to step up and do your job. You often feel like your job is on the line if you choose to speak up and I just... I hope on a personal level that is something that changes. Uh, I think some of the political handling of it has been quite clumsy and perhaps reflects the fact that we still don't have adequate or proportional female representation in our parliament. Uh, So a really difficult week, I think. I think many women felt that way. Lyndon, what were your thoughts? Yeah, a lot the same. I sort of, as a man, wanted to shut up and listen, which I think was probably my role. It did strike me that it is sort of growing in terms of its importance, as you say. 
and the sophistication of the discussion around a range of levels and that International Women's Day isn't about cupcakes and giving out flowers, as one local <laughs> member thought was appropriate. It is about wages. It, it is about domestic violence. It is about women being able to live their lives and, and have careers. Isabella, there was also the allegations against Christian Porter, which he strenuously denies of a historic sexual assault. What did you make of the conversation around that issue? I think it happened in an environment where this feels like it's the biggest issue of our time, that the handling of sexual assault complaints, how women are treated. I think that just, you know, it was like petrol and a match, you know, the way this conversation has happened. I think anyone would say the way this has played out in the media is not ideal. It feels like there's very much two parts to this and they're obviously connected. One is the big question, are these allegations true? And I think we've kind of determined that we're never really going to know that uh, no court of law could ever make a determination because of the very sad circumstances around this. But then there's the other issue, which is kind of just a political one. Politics is a game of optics and reputation. And there's this big question for the government, you know, can your senior law officer ever outrun allegations such as these? Can he ever do his job and people not think about this and whether that's fair or not. Obviously, these allegations have not been tested, but it's a really big question. And in this environment right now, I think a lot of women felt really disappointed by the way it was handled, kind of saying, cops said there wasn't enough. He says it's wrong. The prime minister saying, well, that's enough for me. Let's move on. I think a lot of women felt like there were so many unanswered questions, but it is just this really difficult, messy situation. And I don't think there's a perfect way to move forward from here. Um, there's a lot of talk about this inquiry, whether that could get to the bottom of it, could find some truth. But then there's also a lot of commentary saying that, you know, if our police force is saying we can't determine this, we can't do it properly, maybe a parliamentary inquiry shouldn't either. What are your thoughts, Lyndon? Christian Porter denied the rape allegations. Scott Morrison's been clear that it's a matter for the police. They say they can't take it any further. What are your thoughts on that and how do you think it ends? It is a difficult and complex one. I started looking at this as if I was in that position and what I would want in Christian Porter's shoes is to have a full and independent inquiry and that was something that was clearly missing from that response. I think the woman who made the allegations and her family deserves that and as you say... This is a, a major allegation and has significant impact for Porter's career. He doesn't get away from this without a process. So I didn't catch all of his media response, but while he's entitled to put forward his, his innocence, there's really, as we were saying, there's a very difficult process ahead of everyone. But if I was in that position, I would want a, a very thorough independent investigation. Just picking up on something you said earlier, an observation you made, Isabella, about there's a real question in terms of these stories playing out and in the backdrop of International Women's Day about how well women are protected in politics and what sort of environment they're working in. Do you think that's going to change as more women 
become a part of politics or does politics tend to co-opt them? And I'm kind of interested in your observations on that, particularly because I guess you've also been watching to what extent it makes a difference or doesn't to have Indigenous parliamentarians. Mm. And I don't necessarily think just putting women in that environment leads to change. Um, You need to have men who want change as well. It's very possible that you have women who perpetuate the same sort of attitudes and behaviours and lead the same culture. So I think we have an inquiry going on right now. And I think there's a lot of hope that that might lead to change. You know, there's a lot of questions about, you know, independent bodies who can deal with complaints. And it feels like that's a really missing part of the puzzle at the moment. I think we'd all like to think that if there's more women in there, that it would lead a culture of change, but I don't think that necessarily happens. I think you need men and women at the table who want to lead this because you can't just have women saying this isn't good enough and men standing at the back saying it's not good enough. And obviously that's not the case, but I think you need the whole parliament to want this. Mm, Yeah, I just want to follow up on that in a way. I know, Lyndon, a lot in your work when there's an incident, often of racism, one of the points you make in your work is it's not just the incident, it's how you deal with it, what's the process for dealing with it. And I was just interested in in your reflections. There was obviously a lot of criticism, particularly about the response to Brittany Higgins's allegations and the narrative that often comes out in this these sorts of circumstances of, you know, as a father of daughters as a framing for a response. Now, you are a father of a daughter and a father of a son. And I was wondering what your response is to that kind of framing. Yeah, I I found that quite interesting and particularly coming from a political background that there's a whole range of layers on this, quite complex, but the lens I sort of put over it, as you mentioned, with racism is the governance and the response to Brittany Higgins' complaint from the get-go is a series of governance failures. And that's putting aside the morality and legal issues that, that need to be dealt with. But at every step, they seem to get this wrong. So there's an issue of competence around the response. There's also an issue of humanity around the response that seemed to be lacking. But when we look at that, through the governance lens with racism in organisations as well. These are issues that are put off, they're avoided. We know they're there. We want to protect certain people. And all of those things lead to the problem being greater until it gets to a position where it lands on your doorstep, it's in the papers, or it's brought to your attention instead of you being proactive to go out and meet it. And that people are saying it takes courage. Well, I'd rather have the courage to do that because I'm not sure how my courage would stand up if my failure of governance was in the papers and I had to defend that to the board. So it's really hopefully a lesson for people to be far more aware and far more active in addressing these. It strikes me in the debates we've seen, and particularly the critique of responses from men, that there's probably a different response from First Nations men, thinking particularly of the way in which I think they've seen some commentary about the fact that Aboriginal men are often demonised as violent and sexual predators, and that was certainly the narrative used by governments around the Northern Territory intervention. As a First Nations man, do you feel that there is some kind of racial or cultural lens that's not being appreciated in these debates? Absolutely, and, and that comparison was not lost on me. And it goes back to some... 
I guess, moral value of governments sort of looking down, teaching down to Indigenous communities, whether it's the issues of family violence, domestic violence, that Indigenous men are characterised in a certain way and are certainly not given the opportunity to get their case together. They don't have the opportunity with resources to do these things. And that demonisation, I think, is stands in stark contrast to the way in which other people are dealt with. In the case of Christian Porter, there's a, a specific focus on his career. When an Aboriginal man is in that position, their career is not a consideration and that's okay with me. It really is the double standards that apply to that. And I guess you see it from a very young age when you see, you know, young Indigenous boys really targeted by police, the ones who fill out prisons from a very young age. This is the view that society takes of them, that they are dangerous, that they are perpetrators. And I think when you see some of the narrative we've had around you know, particularly up in Townsville, that idea of a youth crime crisis. And it always seems to be perpetuating the idea that these young Indigenous children are the most dangerous things on the streets. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Barrett and my guests tonight are industry professor at the Jumbana Institute, Lyndon Coombs, and ABC's Indigenous Affairs reporter, Isabella Higgins. Also out on International Women's Day was a tell-all interview by US media icon Oprah Winfrey with the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, and her husband, Prince Harry. Revelations from the conversation included allegations of racism within the British royal family and that Meghan felt so helpless in her situation that she considered self-harm or suicide. Isabella, what did you make of the interview and what did you make of the feeling of hopelessness that Meghan described? I think my heart broke for Archie. The idea that he has to know for the rest of his life that there were concerns that he might be too dark to fit into this family. I thought, what sort of life do you live when that is out there about you forever? I think Meghan Markle's frankness and openness to talk about mental health and suicidal ideations will probably do a lot for the broader conversation. The allegations of racism within the family, did it shock me? No. I mean, need I say more? But I think there are just such big questions that the royal family needs to step up, answer and address now. But really, my biggest feeling was just my heart breaking for all the biracial kids out there who who are questioned constantly about the colour of their skin from, honestly, from within your own family sometimes. It's a hard place to live when you have a white family and a black family and you feel like you don't fit in both. It's not just in society. For some people, this discrimination happens in our family and that's always a, a really difficult reminder. Lyndon, as, as Isabella says, it's probably not hugely a surprise for First Nations people who've been colonised by the British <laughs> to hear there's racism in the family. But what was your reaction to those revelations and on a personal level? Yeah, hopefully we'll start some discussions around racism and how it plays out. My other point was around the media response to it. And now that the pack, they'd already been pursuing Harry and Meghan, and this has gone up now. And so you see the talking points from certain parts of the media really going after them. And I think it's really interesting dynamic, particularly with Queen Elizabeth, that might not be around much longer. It's really tumultuous time for them. And that does have implications for a republic, for other discussions. I mean, to have still have a royal as the head of our state is incredible to me. I, I find it just incredible. And hopefully 
all of this leads to some more constructive conversations. Yes, if I had a choice between the Queen, who I do respect for the job that she's done, and Arnie Pat Turner as the Head of State, I know who I would go for. Well, finally tonight, nothing has made me laugh more than that video of a lawyer who was on a Zoom and had a filter on that made him look like a cat. I'd never known such a thing existed and I've just been delighted just by that. But it did make me wonder, given the amount of time we've all been spending online over the past 12 months, if you've had a Zoom blooper, Isabella. (laughs) I don't know if I've had one as bad as the cat incident. Nothing that's gone viral. No, but I, I was one of those people who got a pandemic puppy. So I just, you know, anyone who's had a puppy knows that they make all sorts of noises at inappropriate times. So there was a lot of barking, whinging, whining, squeak toys in serious interviews on one occasion, you know, he was like coughing up a lung at the end of quite a serious thing. And it sounded like, you know, I just made some disgusting bodily noise and I had to quickly apologise. But then I just like pick up the cute dog. I'm like, no, it's this thing. You know? <laughs> But yeah, that was about as serious as it got. For I me. have so much sympathy sympathy for that. I was on a call, a Zoom with somebody in the states, and I was really trying to impress her. And my cat <laughs> yeah. decided it was a great time to cough up a, th- a furball, and I had to do the same thing. It's like, no, it's not me. So I completely sympathise. What about you, Lyndon? Zoom bloopers. Fortunately, I do put a lot of work into not trying to do bloopers, so clean the nose, <laughs> teeth. Um, but I have burped a few times where I thought I was on. <laughs> and did, you, did you blame it on a cat or a dog or did you own it? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for being with us this evening, sharing your blooper moments, but also your great First Nations insights into a range of very serious topics that we've seen throughout the week. My guests this evening have been ABC's Indigenous Affairs reporter, Isabella Higgins, and Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jumbana Institute, Lyndon Coombs. Join the conversation online, facebook.com slash ABC Speaking Out. Look, listen and learn knowledge. Well, as you heard earlier, this International Women's Day has seen a heightened level of discussion about the rights of women and their protections in the workplace. The reporting of an alleged sexual assault by a former parliamentary staffer, Brittany Higgins, sparked a national conversation about the responsibility of employers to ensure workplaces are safe and how to deal with serious incidents if they arise. This has been heightened by the advocacy of Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, to raise awareness about the rights of survivors survivors of sexual assault and the importance of giving them a voice. In addition to all this, the allegation of rape raised against Attorney General Christian Porter, which he strenuously denies, has further fueled debate. Noreen Young is Professor of Workforce Diversity at the Jumbana Institute and she joins me to bring a First Nation woman's perspective to the conversation. Noreen, thanks for coming back to Speaking Out. Pleasure. What issues has the experiences of Brittany Higgins raised for you in terms of women needing to be protected in their workplace? I think it's been a bit of an irritating discussion in a way because it's led to a reckoning and a discussion about sexual violence, whether it's at work or at home or in the street, in this country and nowhere 
except among ourselves, have I heard anyone say that this colony was built on sexual violence and the role and place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women has in part been one of violence, of violence committed against for all the time since the first day, really. So I think that's been a bit irritating for me and, and I imagine a lot of listeners out there in terms of workplaces, we don't have any statistics as yet. We'll try to get them over the next couple of years on what kind of things could be reported by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women at work. So we need to know that and we need that to be the subject of study. But we do know that women, Australian women, aren't reporting and we know that Australian women don't report because they're not believed when they do report and it's incredibly difficult and I think Grace Tame's advocacy will make a difference in that way because she's saying she was believed and her parents believed her and the teacher that she told believed her and that's what's made all the difference. Listening to what you're saying too about the importance of process and listening when a, when somebody makes a complaint, what strikes you about what workforces do and don't have that was really highlighted with the response to Brittany Higgins' allegations? Well, that's clearly a workplace that doesn't have proper processes in place and you would think that it would in fact be a model workplace but it's clearly not. We had... Brittany Higgins' employer saying in front of a whole group of employees that she was a lying cow for the employer not to understand that you don't say that about anyone in front of employees anyway, but to say that about the person who's made the allegations about your office and how your office handled something is extraordinary. I think it's extraordinary that she's still got her job. It says that there are so many workplaces where that might have procedures in place, but they're not followed because the culture at the workplace, I mean, you really have to wonder about the culture at that workplace where the alleged perpetrator thought that he could do that in that workplace. You'd have to worry about the culture of a workplace that says that there shouldn't be an investigation into the allegations about the Attorney-General. doesn't matter that that's a historical allegation. The point is that he's the Attorney-General and it's the highest lawholder office in the country and that person needs to be of impeccable character. So I, I think that what it says to us is that we really need to work on policies and procedures. The HR industry really needs to work on its role. The culture around reporting really needs working on and the support given to people, and it's not just women but it's largely women, the support given to people who do report needs to be improved substantially. The Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins has been appointed to head an inquiry into work practices in Parliament House. It comes 12 months after the release of a similar inquiry. What do you read into that situation? I think that it's fantastic that at last the government has used the holder of the statutory position that's there to actually do this. So that's really a positive thing. 
I hear that Kate Jenkins really is suitable for the government because she comes from business and I think that's a really positive thing in the current context. I think that it's very important that this has a lens that is bipartisan and can look at it from a number of different perspectives. In terms of the other report, it's quite extraordinary that there has been no response for government in that time since it was released. And hopefully this period of reckoning will give them an opportunity to think about all of the recommendations of that report and what they might mean, but also to look at what they might mean for the most marginalised groups in the workforce, among whom Indigenous women are one of the most marginalised groups. The allegation of sexual assault made against Christian Porter related to alleged behaviour decades before, long before he was in Parliament. But does it raise any workplace issues for you? Well, the refusal to hold an investigation raises a whole lot of issues for me. I think that if it was a CEO of a company, if it was a university vice-chancellor, for example, of course there would be an investigation into that that Christian Porter has somehow been able to twist it to, frankly, the level of drama queen behaviour has staggered me, to twist it to say that if he stands down, then everyone who's accused would have to stand down. Well, in fact, most people who are accused of historical things like that, if they're in a senior position, would stand down. They'd stand down with pay while it was being investigated. I think a lot of Australians work in workplaces where investigations have occurred. It's certainly not unusual. It's usual procedure. don't know why he thinks he's so special. Has the community response to both Brittany Higgins's allegations and the allegations against Christian Porter surprised you? No, not at all. I think I've been talking to people, I've been talking to women. I talked to women for seven years when I ran an advice line at the Working Women's Centre, which was a community legal centre, and so we gave advice to women on issues. So many women have been sexually harassed at work and... We know from talking to our women friends since we were teenagers that women have been sexually assaulted, so not at all. I think it's brought out a lot of distress for a lot of women, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and I think it is something that has to be reckoned with because it is a major problem in this country, not least of which is the level of violence committed towards our women and has been remarked upon in the media that where is Australian feminism when when it comes to where our women are in terms of violence, like it needs to step up, as so many Indigenous scholars have pointed out. I just want to pick up on that. The conversation has been very focused on the experience of women with harassment, but what are the factors that come into play for Indigenous women where their gender and their race intersect? Well, I I often think that what seemed to have transpired in the early days of the colony was that all of the trappings of alleged civilised society of Europe, particularly of the British, seemed to then impact here and the culture of violence against women seems to have been adopted 
And the role and place of Indigenous women in that, in the colonisation process, has been one of where violence has impacted most. Now, one of the things that annoys me about the talk about community violence is that we never seem to really see statistics about how many women, Indigenous women, have violence committed against them by non-Indigenous men and whether or not it's easier for non-Indigenous men to commit violence against Indigenous women because that's even more normalised than violence is against women in the Australian community more generally. So that's something that I think needs to be really examined and I think that it's an emergency and I think Australian feminism needs to treat it that way and advocate for Indigenous women first and foremost. One of the comments that's been made through the last couple of weeks, and you've also touched on this yourself, is that the incidents that have come into the public arena have caused conversations and conversations that we haven't had as often as we should have, haven't had at all. I was just wondering from your perspective, having watched this space for such a long time, do you think we're at a turning point? Even though it's been, as you say, it's been a really hard moment for many women and some men who've been triggered by the conversations. Do you think it's changing? Is this a turning point? I hope so. I am encouraged by Kate Jenkins doing the review into the parliament as a workplace I worked in that as a young woman and it is, in my experience, it was everything that everyone said it is. It was a very difficult workplace culture. But I'm not encouraged by some of the responses to the Christian Porter allegations and now we're seeing all of the things said about the alleged victim that are always said about women who complain or go public or disclose sexual violence. It's being said that she was crazy. It's being said that there is something about repressed memory syndrome. I mean, but women know, we know that if something like that happened to you, like that allegation, then you would, your mental health would be impacted. And uh, so I do think that there's a bit of a gender, class and race divide developing around the conversation where a certain category in society, which is privileged white men, are getting very worked up about the accusation being made, whereas the rest of us are kind of ho-hum in a way about it. We're distressed and we're upset, but we believe women. Mm. Just want to come back to the what we can do in the workplace. I just was wondering what your thoughts are in terms of if we look at, as you've observed, that what was clear was that in Parliament there were no procedures or processes in place to properly deal with such a serious incident occurring in the workplace. What's your advice on how employers can be proactive in terms of creating the appropriate environment in a workplace? Well, one of the things that happens in remedies that are prescribed in in legal proceedings around it is not only you do you have to have a policy, but it has to be seen by employees and has to be accessible. 
And I think we know that the training we do every two years, for example, is annoying to have to do, but it's done every two years and we have to pass a quiz so that our employer knows that we've done the training and that we understand it. And I think that's really important. I think in a way what our workplace at UTS does is model because it makes sure that it's not just accessible, but that it is seen and it's understood. So I think in my experience, that's one of the things that happens where people just don't read what's on the intranet. They don't understand it. They don't take notice of it. It doesn't sink in. And so they don't know what to do when something like that happens. So I think that's really important. But I also think that If it is the case that you don't have policies and procedures, you just have to get them, even if you're a small to medium business, because we know, for example, that in the hospital industry, for example, um, sexual harassment and assault is rife. And I think employers are on notice. I think the real change around this is disclosure and that women will be believed more. And that's what It's so great about Grace Tame being there. And we know in our own communities how hard it is for women to disclose. I think that there will be more onus on employers to do it. But the other thing that I'm really hopeful about is that because the procedures for reporting racism are the same, that there'll be a reckoning around, and we're trying to do that from Jambana, from the hub, and our Gariala work goes to this, that there'll be a reckoning around reporting racism and procedures around that as well. Just finally tonight, you have a daughter and a son. I know there's been a lot of focus on framing answers around having a daughter, but I just wondered from your perspective, having, you know, worked for a very long time on changing attitudes within the workforce. What is the kind of workforce that you hope that both of your children enter? A kinder, fairer workforce that is kinder to women and kinder to all people where sexism and racism in the workplace are eradicated but also rewards decent men because I think most men are decent and I heard Isabella Allende speak and she was saying, and I agree with this, that the fight we're having around this isn't about men and isn't against men, it's against the patriarchy and against, in our case, the notion of the colonist patriarchy, which has been imposed in this country. And I, I would hope for workplaces where people behave in public, and that's the real thing, Larissa, No one is saying you can't be a sexist or you can't be a racist. You can be in private if that's your choice, if that's what you want to be. The issue is how you behave in your public life and that is at the workplace where you are being paid and you're not paid to sexually harass people or assault people and you're not paid to be a racist. Noreen, thank you so much for being with us this evening and sharing your expertise and insights. Thank you, Larissa. Noreen Young is Professor of Workforce Diversity at the Jambana Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. If the topics covered in this conversation have raised any issues for you, you can contact 1800RESPECT, that's 1800 737 732, Lifeline on 13 11 14, Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36, or Black Rainbow via their homepage, blackrainbow.org.au.
Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. Coming up, I'll be speaking with veteran actor, artist and creative director, Auntie Rhoda Roberts, about her final creative collaborations for the Sydney Opera House. But right now, we'll have some music from Melbourne-based hip-hop artist, Kate. Here she is with the track, Natural Woman. Body bubble uh, body bubble hey, yeah. Blind, I was blind away all our songs to complicate their piano and guitar chords. Sing about kissing at midnight on a rooftop. Saying, you let's go me to your bedroom, right? We'll be watching movies all night. Know how to grind and sit by them, both that shit tired. They not no makeup on, some stuff on my head. You look into my eyes. Yeah, I prefer this you instead. You make me feel like a natural woman for money. You make me feel like I have some emotion for the fun. Like I have been on the two shit and we're so up for money. You make me feel like a natural woman. Body bubble bee, body bubble bee, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much my controller. Let me see you, robot. Haven't seen you in a minute, and I, I don't like dust. I didn't know that I was keen on jazz. Rapidly rap, a street tapity tap. Quit when I was 11 to work on my tennis. Now all I do is run from love, and I, I'm guessing Galileo. Cause all I do is reach for the stars and Mars, uh, and Venus, uh, the Ribbonina. We'll be watching movies all night. You know how to grind and sit by the boat that shit tight in. They not no makeup on, still scuff on my head. You look into my eyes, you are prefer to you instead. You make me feel like a natural woman for money. You make me feel like I have some emotion for money. Like I have enough love to share with someone for money. You make me feel Slow but crazy, smoking on that purple hazy. Pick me up at a friend's house, 40 minute drive. Stopped at McDonald's, got a happy meal. Extra pickle, despicable me, torn side. Yeah. It's my first time, I never kissed a guy like I've held his hand and maybe kissed the cheek a couple of times. But none of that lip lip talk shit. Never done none of that lip lip talk shit. You reach into my mind, talk about the universe and how it ain't fair. Now that I want some blue hair, your mom and daddy don't care. Get all the girls' attention and you blush when I say, <clears throat> yeah, I know. And the white girls want your baby, and the white girls want your baby. No, to be a slave, when's the last time you hooked your boy with a fresh face? Have you seen his face lately? You told me how his woman took your place, but you forgot all about that and asked me how was my day? Yeah, like that. And this is exactly you made me feel you made me feel like a natural woman for funny you made me feel like I had some
That was Melbourne-based hip-hop artist Kate with Natural Woman. Auntie Rhoda Roberts is a veteran actor, artist and creative director whose early work broke down barriers in the Australian media landscape. She was a trailblazer for the industry, becoming the first Aboriginal presenter of a primetime current affairs show on the SBS program Vox Populi 31 years ago. In 1995, she founded the Festival of the Dreaming and has long advocated for the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander performers and artists. Among her many accolades in 2016, she was recognised in the Queen's Birthday Honours for her distinguished service to the performing arts. For the past nine years, Auntie Rhoda has played a major role in bringing contemporary Indigenous arts and culture to a global audience in her role as Head of Indigenous Programming at the Sydney Opera House. As she prepares to step down, her final two projects with the Opera House have just been announced and she joins me now to tell us all about it. Auntie Rhoda, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you for having me, Larissa. Wonderful to be on the program. We'll talk about your final two projects shortly, but it's a perfect time to take a look back at your career so far. What first drew you to the media sector? As in working at SBS and being the first Aboriginal to host a primetime current affairs program, which was pretty exciting back in the day. You know, one of the big things about that job was it made me realise the use of terminology and the power that it has. I remember once doing a piece to camera saying for non-Indigenous Australians and I received an enormous amount of letters with people disclaiming how dare I call them (laughs) non-Indigenous Australians. And I went, wow, there is power in the words you use. When you reflect back, what were the barriers facing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander creatives at this time? Look, I think there was a renaissance in the 70s and the early 80s, and we started to see a groundswell of work, which is not unfamiliar with the 90s and the 2000s. And the things always tend to go quiet for about a decade, and I don't know if that's because people are burnt out or that we just haven't been able to address systemic behaviours across the nation. But I think there is progress being made now. I think what occurred back in the 80s, particularly when we were looking at creatives, we were developing our own theatre companies. We were looking at, you know, Bamali, Bangara, all these companies were forming that were Aboriginal-led. And so there was a shift in the control and the power of product that the authorship and control was from a First Nations lens. And we went on to see some great developments. I think the film industry, that has been a great catalyst to look at the model they used. A very slow, slow step of capacity building to the point where you get our producers, filmmakers, DOPs in the mainstream. And I think it's just been such a fantastic model, which I've tried to apply to a lot of the work I've done. But, you know, it always takes the team and it it always takes those ones who went before us. You know, I think of the work of Brian Siren and Justine Saunders and many of the playwrights of the time, particularly Ujuru Nunakul, and how generous they were with their knowledge, but also how open and flexible they were to passing on the mantle. 
One thing that does strike me in having watched you work over too many years that would be polite to mention for either of us is that actually you do approach your work with whatever way you're accessing culture and the the people in the community who you're working with with I don't know the uh, a word for it other than love that you actually really love the culture and you really love the people and that seems to have been a really great driver for you yeah it is love isn't it I mean love and fulfillment that we are the only people in the world that have the oldest culture. So that's something that you do carry as a great trophy in a way, I guess. But I, I think it's also the biggest and hardest challenge working in the creative industries. And, and, you know, we are about storytelling, is getting the trust from community and getting that cultural knowledge where they trust you with their work that often has been plagiarised or you know, it's ended up in areas that was not culturally appropriate. So that takes a lot of communication. And I think that's what it is when you treat people with humanity and kindness. So I have a little thing next to my desk that says, you're lucky you have a job, be kind. So in those moments when I get really frustrated, it helps. But I just know allowing that time and I have been blessed. I mean, I've worked with some of the greatest lawmen and women in this country who have given me their material that's of age-old stories, you know, artwork that's been told for eons and they're allowing me to put it into a new format, into new technology, and they're trusting that the story will still remain true to its origins. So for me, that's the greatest reward I get from the community and that we have that visibility. Is it possible for you to pick out a few career highlights in all that you've done so far? I think one of the greatest highlights was Lydia Miller and myself and the late Vivian Walker and the late Justine Saunders were running a theatre company called the Aboriginal National Theatre Trust in the 80s. And, you know, we were young and skinny and gorgeous and um, (laughs) we were getting a lot of roles. But all the roles were very much the cardboard cutout of what was imagined as a First Nations woman. And so we sat down going, I'm really tired. We wanted to show people that we could have an array of emotions when we were playing a character. So we decided to pool our money and look to commission a writer. And Lydia and I approached this from a very mercenary aspect that, the brief was, we want to play about three sisters who return to their mother's funeral and they haven't seen each other for 10 years. Pretty simple. And we don't want the word Aboriginal mentioned once. Because we had this vision that if we wrote a play that was about three siblings and the challenges with their mother, that three Lebanese girls could play it or three Pacific Islanders could play it, etc. Because funerals and family are the universal stories as such. And so we looked at a writer that was the flavour of the month at that time. It happened to be Louis Nara. Anyway, we um, commissioned him to write this play called Radiance. And that, of course, went on to become a film as well, which was really exciting. And we've seen generation after generation perform that particular play. It was then we taught ourselves that to have the vibrant work and the work that was relevant, you actually had to develop it and integrate it into the mainstream because it just wasn't happening. 
and I see in that whole period of time now, filmmakers are now told if you're going to write about an Aboriginal character, you need to have an Aboriginal consultant. You just can't write about an experience that you've never lived. And so we're seeing an adjustment with the lens. And so I think that's really exciting. And I think Radiance, in a way, was a bit of a catalyst to initiate those conversations of who could and couldn't write those stories and tell those stories. But again, it was a really collaborative approach. And I do believe collaboration is a way forward because both sides can give what each has in the greatness of skills. Now, we've mentioned that you're stepping aside from your role as Head of Indigenous Programming at the Sydney Opera House and you've just unveiled your final works with them. What can you tell us? Well, we have a concert on April the 10th. It's a free event, part of our music series, which was going to be in November, but because of COVID, we couldn't continue the dance rights project. So this we've moved to April. And I wanted to make a very clear presence of young artists that are so amazing and the dialogues they're having in this country, which I think is all about tomorrow. So we called it February, and that means tomorrow in the local Sydney language. It really was a very thoughtful collaboration of myself and working with our music program. And I wanted to show the next face of Australian musicians. This is the face of tomorrow. So it's a lineup of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists along with artists of colour who all live in Australia. Most of them collaborate together anyway, but an extraordinary lineup. So, you know, Ziggy Ramo, I think, is one of the most incredible young performers we have who's not afraid to speak the truth. And most of the songs and the lineup, they're all about truth telling. There's young women from Western Sydney who are Pacific Islanders who've had to move because of climate water rising on their islands. So their stories are pretty amazing that they are first peoples from elsewhere but living in Australia. Artists like Sparrow, we have Milan Ring, we have JK47, Kobe D, Breezy, Barker. All these young, amazing voices that a lot of people haven't heard. But what inspires me about them and what I'm thrilled about this concert lineup is they're using new technology, they're out there, but they are so steeped in their grandmother's stories and grandfather's, you know, and that says something to me that culture has had this shift where they proudly wear it on their sleeve and very proud of their heritage. And they are the new voice and we need to listen to them because they're making some amazing commentary, not only on the challenges they've faced as young people and the judiciary, but also on their space in society, their invisibility. And so this will switch people's thinking of what Aboriginal music is as well, because it's so eclectic. I'm really excited. And what's the other event, if you can tell us about that? So, you know what? You asked me what one of the great events I'd done. Well, there's the song lines I curated for the Opera House sales in 2016. And that, of course, led us to the next rendition of Projection because it's the art gallery of the future. And so on the eastern sales of the Sydney Opera House, 365 nights a year, we screen 
artists and their work that's animated and tells a story. So that commenced and I called it Bardu Gili and I've done two of those which have been highly successful, so successful that we now have a resident band and a pop-up bar each night there so that you can enjoy looking at the sails and, of course, that incredible destination of Jubagali and the home of Benelong. And this year, we're about to bring on the third rendition of Bardu Gili. And so we're working with the Art Gallery of New South Wales and invited a young curator, Kobe Edgar, from the Art Gallery to do her piece on the sails. And so that will be opening in April. So everyone keep an eye out for that. Well, you're going to leave quite a legacy, but I know you too well to know that you're not going to be sitting around doing nothing. What's next for you? Yes, I'm out there freelancing, so if anyone's got a job, you can (laughs) ring me. But I guess the next big one for me is, of course, Blues Fest coming up in Easter. We have a program called Boomerang within Blues Fest, and then we'll be looking at moving Boomerang as a standalone event in October each year, Boomerang Dreaming which gives us another platform for our artists. And I think that's really, really important, particularly now with COVID, our artists, this is their livelihood. So as much as we can do, fantastic. And of course, April sees me in Alice Springs for Parchma, which is a light festival. I think it's the only Aboriginal light festival of its kind. And we get to work with Central and Western Desert communities on their art and turning them into big installations. So the program has music program, a talks program, workshop program, food program, and of course it's a free event in the heart of Alice Springs, au. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out this evening and giving us a chance to celebrate the great legacy you've been creating. And I hope you'll keep dropping in as you continue with your adventures so we can keep up to date with what you're doing. Oh, Larissa, that would be so wonderful. And thank you, and thank you to all your listeners. That's Arnie Roder-Roberts, who is the outgoing Head of Indigenous Programming at the Sydney Opera House. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we will celebrate the voices of First Nations women. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.